one of the things I've always really kind of admired about Rolling Stone as a brand is that they've always felt somewhat kind of omnipresent in in pop culture. Um, so we're thinking about how we can kind of leverage that existing brand authority and, and legacy in a new way into something that feels iconically British uh, and kind of champions British culture, but also doesn't feel too stuffy or dated. Ladies, gentlemen, everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. We take a weekly look at everything that's going on in the media world. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard is from my interview with Charlotte Safers, who is the digital director at Stream Publishing. Uh, they publish the UK version of Rolling Stone and LBGTQ magazine Attitude. Mm-hmm. So we spoke about launching Rolling Stone in the UK, undertaking the digital transformation of Attitude, and what strategies she sees working to grow audiences in digital. Boom. Very nice. Also, a reminder that MediaGazer are running a promo for our newsletter this month. So the homepage of Breaking Trends and Commentary for Publishers and Media Owners is featuring us as a little sidebar. So you can go to MediaGazer.com or follow them on Twitter at MediaGazer. We use them all the time to populate our newsletter. But we're going to be talking about our main story, and I'm going to try very, very hard to be as objective as I possibly can. So I don't know which one of you wants to uh, to, to take us through this lead story. <laughs> Peter, do you want to do it? Because this was your this was your newsletter piece this week. Well, so it's as I said in the newsletter, it would be so easy to just join in the Piers Morgan pile on and take you know the Schadenfreude of his disappearing audience, but we're not going to do that, are we, Chris? No, 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 no. We're going to talk about this from a very top level. We are going um, to get stance exactly. We're going to get all f- media philosophy on it. Exactly. exactly. Uh, the story is, Talk TV has been on the air for four weeks. It's basically an extension of uh, Timed Radio, right? Or not Timed Radio. Is, being you talk radio, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically points on a camera at it, but they have put some investment into kind of the studio, some of the broadcast um, specific things that they need. I, I mean, I think Piers Morgan's bit of, A bit of investment is an understatement. It's very <laughs> yeah. That's true, yeah. Yeah, and the advertising campaign is everywhere. Like, like Piers's face has been everywhere in London. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I can't walk down my street without seeing a bus go past with hit that "love him or hate him, just don't miss him" slogan on the side. Unfortunately, spoiler alert! It seems like a lot of people are choosing to miss them. Great start, apparently, was slick. Piers Morgan, who's at the centre of this whole thing, um, got decent numbers, I guess. Well, he had to beat Donald Trump, didn't he, for saying yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So almost 320,000 viewers. When you take the repeat in, I think it was over half a million viewers. Beat all the other news channels. Great start. And then that was it. That was a high point. Uh, one of the other presenters, Tom Newton Dunn, his news hour has apparently recorded zero viewers at some points. Mm. And I think and Piers with, Morgan is now down to like... 24,000. 24,000, 24, yeah. And in fact, the uh, at the end of the show, that was down to 10,000. We need to talk about this from the perspective of why hasn't this taken off as they wanted? We're not going to dunk on them. We're going to ask, is this, well, kind of, but we're also going to be asking, is this symptomatic of the UK audience not necessarily being into that love him or hate him, don't miss him thing of of very extremist views for the sake of attention, as I think one of our, uh, as friend of Media Voices, Charlotte Henry, actually speculated in her post. So, Peter, what was Charlotte's argument about this? Well, 
the first thing she says, because she wrote, a, I'm not going to say glowing report, but she wrote a very positive report about the first, you know, the launch. She said it was slick, it did well, you know, whatever. But then now she's come back and she said, and she's not made any predictions as to where it's going to end up, but she has said she's shocked at how far and how fast Top TV has fallen. And then she gets into why that might be. And I think that's the interesting part here. And actually, that for me is the encouraging part of this. Mm. Because what she's saying is that the UK market for television in particular is not that hyper-partisan, psychotic mix of headcase individual presenters and super tribal audiences that you see in the US around, like you know, the likes of Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson and um, Fox News, which Fox News, Fox News is now actually a moderate news channel compared to some of this, what's going on in the States, like Owen and Newsmax. So, That's a terrifying yeah, thought. So see, it's just what she's saying and what I take some encouragement from is that Britain's just not up for it. <laughs> British viewers don't want that kind of hyper-partisan all right, Esther. What's your take on that? I mean, that, yeah, that was that was the opening kind of gamut for GB News's launch. Is that the British media landscape was, you know, already biased, and and there was a, they reckon there was this huge segment of listeners or, or viewers that wanted this kind of thing. Um, and like G- GB News is, I mean, it's doing better than this. It's mm. sort of plodding along. It's it's not been without its own controversies. <laughs> that, um, is, that is putting it mildly. Yeah, but I, th- I think Charlotte sort of pointed out that for the people that wanted that kind of coverage, which is a fairly small segment of viewers, GB News got there last summer and they've mm. kind of had time to entrench, they've had time to make their mistakes, they've had time to have their controversy. So they've got Nigel Farage as like one of their evening anchors. Yep. Um, so, so Talk TV is automatically going out. It, you know, that, that's exactly the same audience they're kind of pitching to. Um, and that's, that's actually Talk TV's problem. Talk TV... Yeah. For all the fact that Piers Morgan is is whatever he is, whatever we think of him personally, he is a journalist. He's a real journalist. G- GB News when when they launched, they they launched with an ideology, and yes, they had Andrew Neil as, as the anchor, but it, it you know when he walked off, it it didn't finish the station. Wh- whatever you think of that ideology, I can see both of your faces. I don't. I don't <laughs> think that's true. Though I don't think GB News did launch with that ideology. Mm. I think they genuinely just wanted to be a. Whereas, whereas if you look at talk TV's top of launch, news, no, talk, no, talk TV knew. is literally entirely hung off Piers Morgan. If Piers Morgan walks, the channel's done. That's and I, that and I think that's that's, that's the difference. Is that, that is such an interesting point? Look, I've look not at heard the ad campaigns. Look at the yeah. ad campaigns. It's all Piers Morgan, it, and it's all whether you love him or hate him. You know, tune into this channel. Evidently, I, I think what you're only part of the story. I think okay, yeah, Chris, the people that founded. GB News had an ideology. I don't think Andrew Neil had beyond he has a he has a a, a viewpoint that you and you and I don't agree with. That's why he left because the swivel-eyed loons were taken over, Nonsense. and that's why GB News has an audience because it's there for the swivel-eyed loons. And you talk read that, TV you read that new can't statesman. make that leap. You read that new statesman uh, year on kind of. I didn't. Autopsy. I listened to it. No, the timeline doesn't make sense. He, he Neil offered to stay on long after the fact. It yeah, became clear. Had the technical challenges been overcome earlier, I have no doubt that he would still be there and he would mm. still be saying, oh, we're not the Fox News of the UK, even though that is evidently what they're going for. 
Yeah, I get. Yeah. I mean, I accept that now. Absolutely, that's the ideology point. And, and Esther's right, but I still stick by the point that Farage is mm. GB News at this point. Yeah, I get. And if he walked for whatever reason, I think GB News would probably struggle. I mean, the, the the key thing here is that both Talk TV and GB News are underperforming compared to kind of some of these big Which is the encouragement, that, right? Well, well, yeah, well, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, absolutely it is. And we've seen the two of them actually already try to shift the goalpost and say, actually, yeah, but look at our social following. It's, it's an obvious face-saving approach because they would not have launched as a broadcast channel if that was always part, you know, the bigger part of their strategy. Okay, so I had a conversation with Jasper. A friend of Media Voices, Jasper Jackson, a couple of days ago. We should get badges made. In response to this uh, Charlotte Henry piece that we're talking about. And Jasper disagrees. He's basically saying that there is an audience for that kind of very extreme... Of course there is, but it's tiny. No, no, no. But he's saying that it's a large section of the audience that is primed and ready to consume that. It's just not ready to consume it in TV form in the UK. Oh, Jasper, so it's less. Heart, <laughs> so Jasper, it's less I really hope you're wrong. <laughs> I hope he's wrong. Um, but I, th- there's another there's another sort of point to this that I thought it, it has only been on air for four weeks, and there's a, there's a big tendency at the moment that things that don't have an instant success are written off very very quickly. And, and you know, we've spoken about this in recent weeks. It, it takes time to build stuff like this. Yeah, and it's like with CNN though. Plus, like they, they they gave it three weeks, mm. and yeah, if you're going to build habit, and if you're going to have people coming back time and time again, yeah, you know, people might try it one week, and you know they're on holiday or they're busy the next week. It, things like this need time to really grow and really build an audience. Zero viewers is not good. The <laughs> CNN Plus stuff is different. That's let's, a different. Let's come back to this in six months, and well, if they're still here in six months, and, and, and <laughs> sort of say at that point, right, has this actually failed to find an audience? Because four, I don't think four weeks is enough time. The CNN Plus thing is different because it's it's actually more interesting in a sense from a media point of view, because what what was going on, and there was two opposing philosophies. One was separate news out and get people to pay for it. And then the bigger discovery philosophy, which was bundle news with mm. everything else, and people will pay for more. People will pay for the package. And in a sense, that's what's wrong here, is that people aren't paying for it, but it's separate. So you're going to have to leave the real world to go and join Talk TV's world or GB News's world. And I so hope Jasper's wrong. It's it's a bold move to launch a, um, a rolling news channel, and they were absolutely right to try and do it with an identity that set it apart. The problem, I think, is that they misidentified where audiences for that are now consuming it. It's all online. You know what I think is b- bizarre about this whole thing is that Piers Morgan is the most milk toast completely uncharismatic man in the world and yet he's one of the people who, who they chose to front this like oh look at his opinions type thing uh, is very this just wrong. a bit of a thing that it's the whole pitch of controversy for the sake of controversy yeah absolutely yeah. Um, one, 100% can we end this on a positive note and point people to the Ross Atkins thing that seven ways to fix the news on Twitter or yep. there's, an, there's a good piece in the press gazette about it because he's just brilliant and he's uh, He's coming from us from a from a place of caring love. and love, um, which is way better than any of these numpties. And now onto the news in brief, Peter. This is your first story. Yeah, like PPA Festival was last week. Uh, I haven't been at PPA Festival for a while, but um, I heard this one described as the very best yet by no less a figure than Mr. Andy Cowles, who I met at the UAL 
now quickly. Shout out to the MA Publishing students at UAL who promised, absolutely promised, they would all listen to the podcast <laughs> if I gave them a shout out. That, my friends, is audience development. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and FIP has done a piece uh, on their top top takeaways from the PPA Festival, and they mentioned DNI, um, diversity and inclusion, as one of the highlights. Um, Jamie Garvin's writing about what he says diversity, equality, inclusion are no longer buzzwords. Um, and, and among all the other pressures that publishers are facing, I think it's amazing to see that you know gender and race have been highlighted. And I hope that the class issue gets looked at as well. So, yeah, brilliant. All good. All good. Positive. That's right. Mine's positive as well. Yeah, What's happened true. to us this morning? <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. I'm going to really tank this at the end. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, a story that caught my eye this week was that The Economist podcast have fetched over a billion downloads since launch in 2016. Um, their daily news show, The Intelligence, gets almost 4 million downloads a week. All right for some people. Um, <laughs> but, we uh, yeah. know what to do with that many downloads. We would, we'd... I mean, can you, uh, can you imagine the, well, the Twitter hate we get? Uh, sorry? Um, I, would, I would happily accept that. <laughs> deleting Twitter off my phone for that, <laughs> that amount of bad money. Um, yeah, the interesting thing I thought about, so there's a really good piece in um, Adweek about it, is that overall advertising revenue for their podcast actually grew 30% year on year, which is fantastic. Um, but their, ad- their advertising strategy actually went the opposite way from most podcasters. They started with offering inventory to audio vendors by dynamically inserted ads. Uh, they actually switched in 2019 to selling the majority of their podcasts directly through the ad sales team to clients, uh, which means, I mean, it, it means they get much higher CPMs and, and sort of much better packages for them. Um, but it means crappy ads. <laughs> podcasts now account for 11% of the group's overall advertising revenue, which is, I mean, that's amazing. And finally, just to bring things down, there's a really good op-ed in The Guardian this week from Saffron O'Neill, who is a geography professor. Saffron's arguing that fun in the sun photos, you know, the sort of, Brits to enjoy blazing sun, you know, sort of like pictures of the people on the beach. Uh, she's saying that that's a distraction from the reality of climate breakdown and actually sort of normalizes it a little bit. So it's really interesting in light of the fact that audiences, as we've seen, are genuinely very interested in climate change reporting. And we've seen a number of outlets launch climate verticals over the past couple of years. Um, but it's most interesting, I think, in light of the fact that we just spoke about that report into which papers are doing their utmost to delay action on climate change so they've gone from climate change denialism to climate change delaying effectively uh really good read would recommend it terrifying implications this reminds me of the bbc bite-sized thing where they were like what are the pros of climate oh, change yeah i completely forgot about that um some some cooler countries becoming holiday destinations oh that was fucking insanity it'll be great for ice cream sales <laughs> This week, I spoke to Charlotte Safers, Digital Director for Rolling Stone UK. I started by asking her how she got involved with the UK launch of the iconic title. I actually began my career as a music journalist, so Rolling Stone, you know, it's really felt like a natural fit for me. I always dreamed of working for a music magazine from when I was young, so it's really been a dream come true to work for arguably the world's most influential and recognised one. Mm. Um, In terms of getting involved to this point, as I mentioned, I um, started as a freelance music journalist, so working on broadsheets and for culture publications, and then eventually ended up as digital editor of DJ Magazine uh, for just under five years. 
And that was quite a very role. So I edited the North American print publication for almost a year, um, also worked on their fully ad funded um, Ibiza title. Um, and then following that, actually moved to a newly created role at Days Media. So working across their suite of titles, including Days, Days Beauty, another magazine, and Nowness. Uh, and that was a head of digital and audience role and also worked quite closely with their content studio called Day Studio. And then when I found out that Rolling Stone was going to launch in the UK with a dedicated UK title, I was so excited that I actually reached out to PMC, who obviously owned the master title, and Stream Publishing, who uh, had bought the license to operate in the UK. And luckily for me, uh, there was a role available for me. So that's how I ended up in the role I'm in now as digital director. And alongside, obviously, that Rolling Stone work, I'm also really uh, excited and, and quite honoured, to be honest, to be working on Attitude magazine as well, which is, for people who don't know, um, Europe's biggest selling uh, LGBTQIA plus title. Uh, and I'm working a lot with them on a digital transformation project. Um, so, yeah, that's how I ended up where I am now, in a nutshell. So, I mean, that must be quite a different role. You said you started off as a music journalist, but um, are you doing sort of any journalism now or is it much more sort of audience development? Like, like what, I suppose, what is your role? Yeah, so it's very much an audience development role. Um, and obviously my ex-journalism background is very helpful in that as I still kind of manage and look after the operations for the editorial team, the social team, the producers, the video team. Um, but then also the role obviously expands into um, all of our more digital side operations. So SEO, uh, data acquisition, front end, back end development. Um, so it's quite a broad role, um, but I would definitely say that uh, there are also quite a lot of commercial implications in that as well, which I'm sure we'll come on to talking about later on yeah. in this chat. Um, but part of the reason why I kind of, uh, I guess, moved into this kind of role from a journalism background is that um, I wanted to still be a champion of quality content and still have a connection to uh, the kind of art of storytelling and, and, and journalism itself. But I also wanted to kind of, I guess, diversify my day to day and and really understand, I guess, how magazines can survive and monetize um, in a rapidly transforming digital first world yeah um and like everybody in the uk knows rolling stone magazine it's it's, it's a global brand name um, i suppose what are the uk audience expectations like for an iconic brand like that that has historically had absolutely zero uk presence yeah so i think rolling stone has always had a uk presence just by virtue of it as I said before, being, you know, the world's biggest and, and most iconic music magazine. Um, but it's definitely true that there was no dedicated UK print product um, or website or kind of social channels. Um, but there was always a lot of UK traffic on the dot com in the States. So I think UK audiences were kind of not only cognizant of the brand, but actually really actively seeking out its content and had a thirst to kind of hear Rolling Stone's take on certain British artists or events which wasn't, you know, currently being catered for. So obviously that data kind of very heavily fed into the idea of starting a kind of dedicated UK publication. Uh, and I think 
one of the things I've always really kind of admired about Rolling Stone as a brand is that they've always felt somewhat kind of omnipresent in in pop culture. Um, so we're thinking about how we can kind of leverage that existing brand authority and, and legacy in a new way into something that feels iconically British uh, and kind of champions British culture, but also doesn't feel too stuffy or dated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also kind of exciting to have the chance to build a brand digitally, you know, somewhat from the ground up. As I mentioned, obviously Rolling Stone has great brand fame, but they didn't have a dedicated UK presence up until now. Uh, particularly for me, because in my previous roles, I've often kind of, as so many of us have, inherited certain systems or tech or processes that I wouldn't have personally chosen to invest in. Um, so it's been a really exciting and kind of refreshing change to kind of build the house from the ground up, shall we say. What have your priorities been in terms of, of tech? Like, like what, what's your sort of wish list of tech that you, you go to when you're building a site like this? I mean, to be honest, I think for small and medium publishers, it's really about finding the right partners. Um, specifically, you know, a really great third party dev agency that you can work with that can give you a really, uh, well-rounded like 360 offering in terms of suites of tools, whether that be, as I've said, like, um, you know, CMSs or platform or hosting, um, or SEO tools or, um, data plugins, optimization or governance, you know, I think finding that right tech partner, which to be really honest, can be a challenge. And I've definitely cycled through a few agencies in my career. But I think, um, yeah, finding that partner is absolutely key. Um, and I think also being able to um, select team members and also select tools that can be nimble and agile enough to kind of scale up and down with you as as you grow or retract, um, given what happens with, obviously, uh, you know, your audience and, and and its growth or its kind of trajectory. Yeah. Have they given you quite a free hand in terms of you're not expected to use certain CMSs or, or certain partners? You, you can just choose what, what you want to build. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was really lucky because obviously I'd come into this role um, on the transformation side for Attitude and then obviously to build something from the ground up with Rolling Stone. So I was given quite a lot of flexibility in terms of kind of tech stack and, and what tools I wanted to work with, which, as I said before, is very refreshing, yeah. um, given that, you know, for pretty much every other kind of uh, digital professional out there right now in publishing, I would say that we tend to inherit um, tools and processes that maybe aren't uh, the best that they sh- they could be or the most efficient. So that's definitely one of the things that really drew me to this role is, as I said, to be able to kind of build from the ground up. Yeah. Um, and given the global nature of digital media, I, I suppose from an audience or, or even technical perspective, why why does the brand need a dedicated UK site? Like, are there sort of are there benefits in terms of being able to develop a more localized audience? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think, as I said before, Rolling Stone US definitely saw hunger from UA or UK audiences specifically for kind of UK-based content. And I think they quite rightly thought that that would be best fostered by UK-based journalists and creators who were on the ground. And that's kind of how the partnership with the existing UK publisher, Stream Publishing, came into play. Um, I think on a strategy level, like it's really important for Rolling Stone UK that we really 
continue to uphold the tenets of the flagship brand um, that have enabled it to remain an authority on, you know, all things music, film, TV, and kind of politics and culture more widely. Um, but yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, we really want this UK offering to feel different to our US counterparts. And editorially, you know, we want to be featuring new and fresh talent. Um, and we want to kind of move away from that kind of iconic coverage of those legacy acts that Rolling Stone is probably best known for. I think for this UK operation as well, it's a really exciting time for us to be able to have the potential to kind of uplift some very UK specific music genres as well. So whereas our sister brand in the US might cover country music or Latinx music um, in the UK, you know, we can look at electronic music. We can look at UK rap and grime. We can look at drill, UK garage. Um, And I think that that diversification is not just relevant to music, but also very much to kind of our politics and, and social issues section as well. Um, which Rolling Stone US is obviously so famous for covering. covering. Um, And actually, it's been really interesting in terms of content strategy that some of our best performing articles on the site so far have actually been politics-led. So pieces on, you know, the dwindling right to privacy in the UK or whether Labour can win the next election um, among disillusioned young people. So I think... There's actually not that many magazines or publishers in the UK market right now where you can actually kind of read an opinion piece on, I don't know, the future of privatisation in the UK alongside, um, you know, a really fun retrospective on like the golden age of British YouTubers. Or you can read a really in-depth and intimate cover feature with arguably the UK's biggest rock band right now, Bring Me the Horizon, and then literally sit that beside interviews with everyone with from Katy Perry to Corn to your local MP. So <laughs> I think <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's that it's that it's our content mix that is differentiating our offering um, from what else is in the UK market right now. And obviously we can then cascade that down into what we can offer brands in terms of kind of innovative content and partnerships and also, you know, more traditional ad deals and structures and that feeds into our monetization strategy as a whole. And I also think there's a big opportunity with this kind of UK, dedicated UK publication as well, that we've really got a huge opportunity to speak to young people um, in a way that maybe they haven't traditionally been spoken to before by a publication like Rolling Stone. I think it's amazing time to try to kind of capture that Gen Z audience um, for a brand like Rolling Stone because we know that Gen Z um, and young people are, you know, highly referential and they kind of remember quite a lot of iconic Rolling Stone moments. You know, they remember the Britney Spears cover. They remember Almost Famous. There's even a like a Rolling Stone reference in the new Guardians of the Galaxy game on Xbox. So, you know, I think that they, they are very aware of um, the Rolling Stone brand. Do I think they're going to rollingstone.co.uk and typing that in uh, as direct traffic? No, I don't. But I think that there's huge potential there for us to kind of funnel that fandom in a new and interesting way um, and in a way that maybe the sister publication in the US hasn't necessarily um, capitalised on before. Yeah. Is that going to involve joining TikTok? (laughs) We're already there. We're already there. Um, and I, I do want to get onto your work with attitude in just a moment, but um, you you did touch a little bit on the commercial there. What are the main um, revenue opportunities here? I think that 
the main thing that we're really focusing on with Rolling Stone at the moment is finding the right partners with whom we can monetize. Uh, I think that the integrity of the brand and, you know, the amazing brand fame that I'm spoken about and kind of the, the ethos of Rolling Stone um, is the main thing that we need to try and uphold and preserve. Hmm. So I think um, we're not particularly chasing down, I would say, a particularly hard line strategy across display advertising or co-branded content or you know pre-roll and video or whatever I think we're more looking at finding the right um, partners which with with whom we can create some really you know innovative content that really speaks um, in a authentic and legitimate way to our audience um, and seeing what we can build out with those partners Um, so yeah I think for me uh, as I said before it's really important that I remain a custodian of not only the great journalism that Rolling Stone does, but also we kind of protect that that really amazing um, brand reputation and brand ethos that, that exists now in the market. Yeah. And you also led the transformation for Attitude magazine. So what were your priorities when you were given that task? Um, I think the thing with Attitude is that they were kind of actually already doing a really amazing job uh, when it came to kind of optics and and from a branding perspective. So a lot of this work has actually been largely focused on internal processes um, as much as external strategies. And of course, you know, the golden things like uh, audience growth and, and, and how that ties directly to revenue. Um, but I think with kind of the term digital transformation I think it can sometimes be misleading as well because I think uh, a digital transformation is probably never finished so even though I would say that we're um, you know we're, we're over the hump and we've kind of done stage one of this work um, I would say that there's also kind of a wider piece around how do we keep growing and evolving um, and also how can we get I guess the right people within the business? How can we get those key hires installed in the business who are kind of nimble enough to kind of adapt and and grow that strategy in the day to day, rather than just having me kind of coming in and doing audits and, and, and making demands from the top down. Um, And yeah, I think, I think as well with attitude, something that's been interesting and something I tried to do with pretty much all the brands I've worked with and, um, and with clients as well is, um, trying to do kind of a level of, I guess, controlled experimentation. Um, But that being said, I also think it's probably not necessary for everyone to jump on every trend or product or new platform, Um, particularly, you know, if it doesn't make sense for A, your audience or B, your budget or your kind of infrastructure. So we're very much looking at how we can be um, ambitious and digital first um, with attitude and how we can find new audiences on new platforms and kind of develop um, new modes of acquisition for attitude that can deliver super engaged, really sticky users that are going to stay in a kind of long-term relationship with the brand, but how we can also do that in a way that feels sympathetic uh, to kind of the the resource and the revenue of a, of a small to medium publisher. So it's been it's been a really interesting project so far. And when it comes to audience growth, there's there's a bit of a sort of backlash now to the idea that publications can survive on scale. There's a lot of you know, headlines like BuzzFeed and, and Vice that have, have really fallen fallen foul of that. What's your take on that? I mean, I think it's about time that the backlash happened, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but I do think that uh, I think 
obviously backlash has kind of negative connotations to it. And I actually think that um, what's happening now has been a very necessary evolution. Um, And I actually do feel that there are a lot of positives in the situation. I think that uh, we could be kind of on the golden cusp of something really new and exciting in, in, in digital publishing. Um, but I would qualify that by saying that, again, that's probably something more for smaller and medium publishers who are lucky enough to have already grown, you know, are quite small, um, but are very kind of, or smaller compared to kind of the scale of maybe broadsheets and, and big nationals, but um, who are lucky enough to have kind of grown a small but very known and very loyal and engaged user base. I feel like um, this might be the time that they actually um, may be seen and valued more uh, on agency side and, and by brands and also are kind of given more effective tools to be able to kind of monetize their small and engaged audiences. Um, I do also feel that there has been a huge rush, um, particularly, I guess, in the last kind of two to three years um, for first party data acquisition, knowing what we know about what's coming down the line with deprecation of third party cookies and kind of increasing um, data privacy and data governance governance laws. And again, totally transparently, obviously, that has been one of the challenges of obviously starting a new brand from scratch, uh, is that we have had to try and be aggressive in terms of our data acquisition strategy, because we're not, you know, coming from a legacy publisher position where we might have 10 years worth of user data. But I do think that users are also much more savvy around how their data is kind of managed and and utilized. Um, And it's actually been quite fun for me to work on a revised strategy for Attitude and a new strategy for Rolling Stone UK uh, on ways we can expedite our data capture objectives, um, but in a way that really upholds kind of trust and transparency with our readers, which I think was probably missing from the space mm. um, over the last few years. So that's, again, been something that that I've really enjoyed. And I think it's been interesting to see how well uh, users have been responding when that's done with radical transparency and, um, and integrity. Yeah. When it comes to growth strategies, is there anything in particular you see as being crucial for growth? Like, do you have different strategies you apply to each brand or are there sort of quite generic things that, that do work? I mean, I think the easy answer, if I was going to be easy on myself, I think the easy answer would just be to say, oh, it's completely brand specific. And, you know, if you want to know the answer, uh, please hire me. <laughs> no joking. <laughs> um, there are, but I think, um, you know, there are definitely like commonalities between publishers. And I think also because I've always worked for kind of largely culture publications, I definitely do see similarities in the way that kind of these magazines operate and kind of the levers that are available to be pulled. Um, and also definitely like the challenges that all of them face as a cohort. Um, I think for culture publishers, honestly, like leveraging your archive correctly and effectively is definitely the key in terms of creating that, um, steady and long-term kind of groundswell of traffic to your sites and, um, increased engagement with your audience and and the ability to kind of acquire new users when they visit your site for the first time. Um, you know, so many publishers that I've worked in the past have had such amazing, super rich uh, archives of kind of evergreen content. Um, 
And again, this kind of content is also, you know, having a renaissance or is even more potent now because, as I said, young people are so highly referential and and they're so obsessed with the 90s and the noughties. So thinking about working with fashion publications like Dazed or another, for example, who just hold these incredible archives of owned photography of, you know, the world's most amazing models and celebrities or beautifully written cover stories um, and insightful pieces of journalism around celebrities that are kind of still potent today there's a kind of huge opportunity for those publishers to continue to optimize and and re-optimize that content to keep bringing in that that groundswell of traffic I think um at days you know we did a lot of strategy work around creating wells of easily discoverable content around certain topics that we knew really mattered to our audiences um and obviously we defined these by like surveying in-person research and then some ux and behavioral and and heat mapping work as well and once we identified these topics um these kind of like key evergreen themes then filtered down not just not just into kind of our future commissioning structure but also into our new cycle in the day-to-day as well and i think that that is really important you know to keep asking the question um what do people in your audience care about and kind of how can we create these rabbit holes of content that people can get lost down we used to call it trying to create basically our own version of of the youtube algorithm basically but for journalism and thinking about how we can leverage you know that archive uh plus our new stories and also how we can utilize different types of media to then tell those stories so images, galleries, listicles, video, audio, whatever it is, to kind of create these wells of content that people can get lost down. I think the other thing I would say as well for growth is that any publisher um, should really be looking at kind of their content suggestion algorithms um, and their tagging algorithms. Um, Both of those things have always had a massive impact for me with every publisher I've ever worked at, you know, both in terms of pages per session and obviously session duration as well. But interestingly, that point kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier, which is that these strategies are kind of all well and good to say in theory, um, but you also need to be working in an organization or environment where these kind of strategies can be backed by the tech as well. So both on the digital design development side um, and with your ad tech stack as well, you know, it was quite an investment um, for certain publishers that I've worked in to kind of invest in looking at their content suggestion algorithms, for example. But the results obviously spoke for themselves. But I think that um, I've been lucky in the sense that I've always worked with publishers that have been very willing and open to investing not in the content and the journalism, but also in the technology that backs that up as well. So um, I feel quite passionate about, I guess, helping publishers build products that are agile enough to support their growth but then also are taken into consideration what's best for the user and then also what's kind of most time efficient for the staff as well. So to grow an audience is there sort of one factor that you would say is crucial to success for publishers? I think the number one thing is definitely research. I mean, it sounds obvious but how can you kind of expect to attract and convert and retain an audience that you don't know inside out from the ground up. I also think that the curatorial kind of power of journalists and editors should never be underestimated. And I think journalism is fundamentally the engine of all of these businesses. And I think that sometimes maybe we can uh, lose sight of that in a sea of fairly homogenous branded content. And 
I think in a world where everything is content, I think I must say the word content 17 times a day, every day, (laughs) I think it's really important that publishers actually strive not to lose our art form, which is storytelling. And that ultimately comes from from our journalism staff and and our producers and our social storytellers. So really, um, I would say that that is ultimately very crucial to the success of publishers. And then, as you know, the last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or saw that really affected you? Yeah, so I just watched um, Pieces of Her and The New Notes on a Scandal on Netflix, both of which were excellent. I love a good crime drama. And then for a slightly more cerebral suggestion, um, I actually read a really good piece in The Atlantic recently, which is called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And I'm sure it will come as no surprise to anyone that the whole thing is about social media. So the Media Voices podcast and the newsletter that Chris is going to tell you about in a second are free, but they're not cheap. Costs us time and money to put together and we'd love you to contribute. So go to voices.media, check out our coffee page and send us some cash, please. <laughs> send us some <laughs> cash. While you're there, why don't you validate us in a slightly different way by signing up to our daily newsletter? It contains the four most important stories that we found for you that day, often from Media Gazer, and occasionally some puppy pics or baby photos. So do go to voices.media to sign up for that. But until next week, when we'll be back with another fantastic guest, goodbye. So long. Ta-ta.